Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Addressing Insomnia in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. The insomnia that's often associated with Alzheimer's disease has long been a burden for both patients and caregivers. And with new research suggesting that there may actually be a bi-directional relationship between the two, it's time we take a deeper look into this connection and how we can better manage our patients. This is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. David Neubauer, and joining me in this discussion is Dr. Richard Isaacson. Dr. Isaacson, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much, David. I've been really looking forward to this chat. Um, hopefully, we can learn a little bit from each other. Great. So why don't we start, Dr. Isaacson, with a brief discussion of Alzheimer's disease, including its definition, key characteristics, and prevalence? Sure. So Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurological disorder. It's a brain disease that affects a variety of things. I think some people think of Alzheimer's as a problem with short-term memory and then changes in other thinking and, and cognitive skills changes in executive function, changes in language, but really it affects the whole brain. So it's in some ways a neuropsychiatric disease. It can change a person's behaviors. It can change a person's um, uh, really anything, including sleep. And today, um, really one of the most um, under really recognized uh, aspects of Alzheimer's disease is these changes in sleep. And that's why I'm excited to be here. When it comes to understanding the key pathological findings, I think traditionally, and for me in medical school, I was taught that the things that cause Alzheimer's disease are amyloid. Amyloid is the protein, a protein that aggregates in the brain. It's these sticky plaques that build up in the brain, and amyloid beta is found uh, when you look at the brain of a person with Alzheimer's disease after uh, they pass away on an autopsy. However, we now have biomarkers, amyloid-based PET scanning, for example, that can understand that we actually un that we know that there's amyloid in the brain even before the person passes away. Another key pathologic finding is tau, and tau, or neurofibrillary tangles that are made up of the tau protein, are also a key pathophysiologic finding. However, we're really just not exactly sure what causes Alzheimer's disease, and some people even think that amyloid actually may not be a cause, but it may be a harbinger, or it may be a characteristic that builds up over time. And the, the sentence that I, I think characterizes this is that, you know, sometimes if you don't take the garbage out, you're going to get sick. And the accumulation of amyloid may be in response to something else, and the amyloid is just the garbage that accumulates that we can detect later. So whether it's problems with oxidative stress, inflammation, infection, uh, glucose hypometabolism, and, and um, really insulin resistance, I think there's a variety of likely possibilities that may promote pathology in Alzheimer's disease. It may lead to some of the uh, symptoms as well as the increase in prevalence. When it comes to the prevalence and the progression, Alzheimer's disease is a slowly progressive neurodegenerative disorder. So when someone initially starts having those initial symptoms, they may have something called mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. This means that symptoms of cognitive dysfunction are beginning, but the person can still take care of themselves, so they don't necessarily have something that's called dementia. Alzheimer's disease dementia progresses over time, and when someone has MCI, or the earlier, first symptomatic stage of Alzheimer's, at a range of about 15% per year, a person can convert to Alzheimer's disease dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's dementia basically continues to decline through mild, moderate, and severe stages. And during these stages, uh, people become more dependent on others for care. 
these symptoms can progress over a few months, a few years, and sometimes over a decade or more. When it comes to care providers, you know, uh, Alzheimer's disease doesn't just affect the fam the patient, it affects the entire family. And it's really important for care providers as well as uh, the spouse, the children, uh, extended family members, and, and paid caregivers to understand all these idiosyncrasies and understand that there are many different characteristics of Alzheimer's um, and that the person really needs supervision and help. And finally, when it comes to societal burden, um, it's just shocking. I, I really believe um, that Alzheimer's disease is really a public health urgency, if not emergency. Um, for In fact, the costs of Alzheimer's disease you know, are billions of dollars every year, and it may bankrupt our entire medical system if uh, some sort of therapy or some intervention isn't found soon. So in keeping with that background and information in mind, Dr. Neubauer, let's, let's move on to insomnia. What can you tell us about its key features, its prevalence, and even possible causes? So we'll first talk about insomnia generally in terms of the diagnostic criteria. You know, first there needs to be that nighttime sleep complaint, which might be difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, waking up too early. Now, that's really a subjective complaint. We recognize that uh, people with Alzheimer's disease um, have, uh, you know, quite a spectrum of their uh, disability and some, you know, on the extreme end are really not in a position to offer subjective complaints. And that's why in the most recent nosologies, it's included care provider reports with regard to sleep-wake patterns. So it easily fits into this criteria. There needs to be some degree of daytime consequences associated with the nighttime sleep complaint. There needs to be adequate opportunity for sleep to occur as well. Finally, in terms of the diagnostic criteria, should be a problem three nights a week uh, for at least three months. Now, we recognize uh, with dementia patients, oftentimes that's very long-term sleep, sleep disturbance. The prevalence is, is relatively high. At least uh, half of individuals you know, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease do have a sleep disturbance. And uh, of course, that goes along with the severity as well, um, increasing with worse severity. Now, we recognize generally with regard to the prevalence of insomnia, it tends to get worse as people age. But we don't really think that that bad sleep should be a consequence of aging. Rather, it seems to go along with the comorbidities that increase with aging. So some of the possible causes um, for, for that worsening of sleep as we age might relate to circadian rhythm issues. So we know that, that the circadian clock uh, has a very robust effect on the timing of our nighttime sleepiness and, and daytime alertness. That whole pattern tends to shift a bit earlier as we age and therefore early morning awakening uh, may occur and more, more naturally as we age, but also um, sleepiness in the evening may come on earlier, although people don't necessarily go to bed earlier. It's been speculated that uh, melatonin is either lower or perhaps has an abnormal distribution with aging that might affect the sleep-wake cycle. The environment is, a, is an important factor as well. So we think that a lot of activity in the daytime and a lot of light exposure in the daytime is really good and darkness at nighttime. But in some settings, people really are not able to take advantage of um, those regulatory processes, those external factors that help maintain the, the robustness of, of the cycle. Thanks so much for breaking that down for us. Is there any bi-directionality in the relationship of sleep 
and Alzheimer's disease. Well, that is exactly the current thinking, and that's relatively new. You know, we've known for uh, probably a century or more that sleep difficulty accompanies uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease in particular. So we, we've known that the, the, the one-way street of the dementia leading to sleep problems. We now appreciate the fact that lack of sleep uh, impairs memory and and, and sleep difficulty seems to come on perhaps years earlier than other more obvious aspects of cognitive decline with Alzheimer's disease. And so we now appreciate this, this bi-directionality and even have uh, glimpses now of some of the mechanisms that, that might be responsible for that. So now that we appreciate that this bi-directional connection exists, Dr. Isaacson, what possible mechanisms support the belief that insufficient sleep is a risk factor for Alzheimer's? Yeah, so I think this this area of the science has just evolved so much. You know, when I was in residency and 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 med school, there, there was no nothing, nothing in the textbooks, nothing in you know journal articles, nothing. But over the last decade, you know, I really feel this whole um, area has evolved. And you know, whether sleep is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, which I think it is, and sleep disturbance meaning, or whether it's just a part of the disease that's manifesting, you know, years or even decades prior to the actual symptomatic phase of Alzheimer's, meaning maybe. Maybe sleep is a non-cognitive symptom. Uh, it's, it's a disturbance that happens decades before the, the, the typical symptoms. Um, you know, we're really trying to elucidate this. So what I would say is that the most exciting aspect of our understanding about the relationship between sleep and Alzheimer's is this mechanism and this uh, pathway and this concept called the glymphatic system. And when I first heard this, I kind of you know, turned my head a little bit. I said, what's the glymphatic system? You know, I understand about the bloodstream and I understand about the lymphatic system when you fight an infection and the, the lymphatic drainage and all that. But the glymphatic system is is really a, a pathway and, a, and a, a system that I don't think most people were really aware of at all existed. And I think it's really been this new area of science. So the glymphatic system is really what is used in the brain to clear metabolic byproducts. Or basically, you know, the analogy I used earlier about amyloid potentially being a, a reactive uh, you know, protein that, that, that changes its conformation and then basically it's a garbage that gets um, accumulated over time. You know, believe it or not, during deep sleep is actually when the garbage or the amyloid gets taken out. And in, in the setting of you know, clearing these metabolic byproducts, inadequate phases or inadequate lengths uh, or quality of sleep, specifically deep sleep, may be one of these pathophysiologic um, avenues that we can try to um, both A, intervene on, and B, try to further understand about the relationship between taking the garbage out um, if the person is going to be sick and maybe if we can you know, promote glymphatic drainage through whatever process, whether through a medication, whether through uh, lifestyle changes, whether through non-pharmacological approaches of sleep. Even I've heard of sleep positioning, maybe sleeping on your side versus sleeping on your back has different um, you know, effectiveness when it comes to this glymphatic drainage. So uh, oftentimes I, I talk to my patients um, about this and, and I really underscore how important sleep is. Um, but I often say, you know, uh, exercise. Exercise is the number one thing a person can do, for example, to, uh, in terms of the evidence, to reduce a person's risk uh, for Alzheimer's disease and, and to support brain health overall. And, you know, as a, you know, 
colloquially speaking, maybe uh, the exercise loosens up the amyloid. And you know, we've actually seen this in, in, in mice, for example, reductions in amyloid accumulation in mice that exercise versus mice that don't. But maybe this glymphatic system is you, you take the exercise or whatever else to loosen up the amyloid, and then you take the deep sleep and the glymphatic drainage to loosen it up, and now we're going to get rid of it and we're going to take the trash out. And maybe that's how we can support brain health and, and um, you know, slow Alzheimer's progression or um, even uh, reduce risk before symptoms. So, um, you know, this is a complicated topic, and I think it's one that's evolving um, literally weekly. I almost see new studies on this. But Dr. Neubauer, I, I now I'd like to ask you, what specific sleep problems occur in patients with Alzheimer's disease? Well, from a clinical point of view, I, I think the, the, the best word is fragmentation. You know, sleep deteriorates in a lot of different ways. Um, um, people have more difficulty falling asleep. Once they get to sleep, it tends to be lighter, easily disrupted. Um, perhaps the individual is waking up too early. Many people sort of have a flattening uh, of the differentiation between nighttime sleep and, and daytime alertness, such that they're awake more at nighttime, but then sleeping a lot during the daytime. So no longer is there that robust differentiation between the nighttime and, and the daytime. And I think that that sort of um, fits in with the, the, the um, bi-directionality that we're, that we're now appreciating. You know, there's less opportunity if there's less deeper sleep for that amyloid clearance to be, to be t taking place. Um, there are other aspects uh, of difficulty that, that people may have at, at nighttime. There may be wandering behavior, and it, it might even be that some of the sundowning uh, that can occur in the evening and into the nighttime, you know, may um, have relationship to the circadian cycle and perhaps to uh, melatonin rhythms as well. But, but you know, what excites me so much now is this uh, appreciation of the glymphatic system because we know that um, beta amyloid is better cleared during sleep and while we're awake, more of it is being produced. And obviously, we want to have it cleared out as much as possible. And we think that part of the bi-directionality is really like a, like a vicious cycle with um, poor sleep is leading to uh, less amyloid clearance. And we think as a result of that, more um, am amyloid beta um, deposition is actually impairing the functionality of the, of the sleep-wake mechanisms. So, Dr. Neubauer, continuing right along in our discussion, are there sleep architectural changes that occur in Alzheimer's disease patients? And if so, are they different from other forms of insomnia? Well, the quick answer is, is, is yes and no. Um, they are similar to other types of insomnia, but much more extreme and in extreme versions of what we see with a lot of other uh, elderly individuals with, with sleep problems. I mentioned fragmentation from a clinical point of view um, earlier, but also we recognize when doing a sleep study that sleep is, is quite fragmented when we're looking at the, the EEG pattern. There tends to be much less slow-wave sleep, slow-wave activity, both in terms of the amount, but also the, the amplitude of the actual slow waves occurring. There tends to be less REM sleep as well, but also the whole differentiation of sleep stages tends to, to, to break down. And when we think of, about just solid sleep being um, stage two, where we have um, spindle activity and K-complexes, those, aren't, those don't really have the same sort of uh, morphology as individuals uh, with healthier brains uh, who, who don't have uh, any sort of dementia. So there are some pretty clear 
um, characteristics that occur. One other interesting aspect of this is that if you look at the power spectrum of the EEG in dementia, it tends to be shifted towards the higher frequencies, you know, representing the fact that there's less slow wave activity. And this higher frequency, you know, goes along with greater brain activity and probably with greater uh, deposition of the amyloid and less clearance as well. So it's all part of that, that vicious cycle that, that we see. Interesting. And just a quick question. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of changes in sleep architecture and changes in REM sleep, um, dreaming um, changes, uh, what, what are your feelings on, um, you know, I've, I've had uh, patients that have talked to me about changes in dreams, vivid dreams. Um, is, is, is REM sleep impacted as much or is, it, is each person somewhat of an individual? Yeah, so there's a lot of individual variation and it's really a tendency for a decrease in REM sleep, but it probably is not as uh, as significant as the decrease in the slow wave activity. And since sleep is lighter, when people are in REM sleep, they may be more aware of that dreaming, they, they may complain of vivid dreams um, uh, and even nightmares as well. You know, in, in the broader discussion of, of dementia, there also are um, parasomnias like REM sleep behavior uh, that, that occurs, of course, during REM sleep. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. during slow wave sleep or deep sleep, that's when the lymphatic system exactly. is most active. So if we have decreased deep sleep or slow wave mm -hmm. sleep, then maybe we have uh, problems with getting rid of the amyloid and the person mm -hmm. is, is not doing as well. So right. it makes, makes a lot of sense. So let's shift gears here and talk about the treatment of patients. Um, can you comment on what non-pharmacologic insomnia treatment options are appropriate for our Alzheimer's disease patients? Oh boy, yeah. The the non pharmacologic approaches um, are just so so important, and I, you know we we give these talks and grand rounds and, and other things. And there's a, a great paper from several years back by uh, Cohen Mansfield that really goes through all of these um, you know uh, aspects that, that we should think about both for you know people, for example, with some behavioral changes as well as sleep disturbances. And and you know the the list really goes on and on, and it's so important. You know, um, treating with a medication or a supplement or or this or that, sure, important, and there's evidence and, and I think it's you know a vital part of, of the picture but these non-pharmacological approaches are, are absolutely necessary so uh, you know caregiver education is key um, spending time with the with the caregiver um, and and also the care team to, to uh, help explain this I'm um, recommending books um, meeting with a social worker um, probably is among the best things a person can do, or you know, sending a person for an actual you know a discussion with a, a sleep psychologist, as one example. But when it comes to the actual specific things, um, reinforcing daily routines is key. Um, using environmental strategies, you know, as as you alluded to before, um, you know, people that sit in the dark all day. Um, how are we going to expect their circadian rhythms to be in order? Um, well, we probably won't. So making sure to balance the light and darkness. You know, a person with Alzheimer's disease, um, if they're sitting in a dark room, why don't we move them to a lighted area? Maybe put some music on. Maybe put some activating something, um, you know, to, to keep, keep a person awake and have the person's circadian clock refreshed a little bit with, uh, with daylight and sunlight. Uh, during the night, well, it should be darkness. Um, you know, I I think uh, oftentimes we have a little crack in the window that lets the light in. Well, maybe we should put some put something there. Um, you know, in my bedroom, my my blinds um, have that little space. I decided to you know put something against the wall to reduce 
that that light coming in to, to bother you. And it's the same kind of thing with a person uh, with Alzheimer's disease, dementia. We want to really try to stimulate these. When it comes to daily routines, you know, being active during the day, um, listening to stimulating music, listening to um, the television or something on in the background. But then when it comes to the nighttime, maybe quiet music, uh, calming music. Maybe we shouldn't have loud sounds um, around. These are things to help balance things. And then finally, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is, is certainly uh, a technique that can be used. Um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy has tons and tons of evidence, and especially in what I would say uh, is the most earliest stages, really um, uh, mild dementia as well as even mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. These may be the um, more effective um, intervention times to consider cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Yeah, I agree. And clearly it needs to be targeted uh, to, the, to the individual patient and what, what their capabilities are. But I agree with all of that. I think of it as really the infrastructure of treatment of insomnia, and, it's, and much of it is very applicable to the Alzheimer's population. So let's talk about pharmacologic management. Can you comment on the risks and benefits of uh, using a medication in this population? Sure. So this is a this is a tough uh, a tough area because we really have to balance the risks versus benefits. And you know, from a practical clinical perspective, uh, whether it was this morning, whether it was last week, I mean, I, I almost every week something comes up with a person with dementia, um, and really balancing. You know, what can we use? You know, what kind of uh, should we start? You know, always we always talk about starting low and going slow. But what do we start with? Um, so first of all, I'd like to just touch on the importance of using caution in cognitively impaired individuals. You know, traditional sleep-inducing medications um, have a much different effect on someone with cognitive dysfunction than someone without. And also, of course, there's an age effect. You know, older people and more frail uh, people are going to have potentially a much more, um, you know, likelihood for risk rather than the benefit from from interventions, from, pharmace- from sort of pharmaceutical interventions, supplements, um, you know, that can maybe promote sleep and, 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 and make someone feel tired but that hangover effect uh, may be much worse. And in someone with dementia, the last thing we need is someone to wake up in the middle of the night, have that hangover effect, be groggy, and then fall or, or hurt themselves. Um, the other part about this is, you know, kind of along the same lines, the importance of using caution in patients with physical comorbidities. Um, someone that has motor difficulties as it is, you know, when we use certain medications that have sedating side effects, um, they're going to be much more likely to fall. Dr. Neubauer, you know, I'd love for you to kind of give us, uh, you know, a one-by-one overview of some of the medications, supplements, um, you know, some of the over-the-counter things that I think um, we've seen um, that people use on their own, the risks and benefits, uh, you know, and of course, the FDA-approved medications. Um, there's a lot of emerging therapies, a lot of exciting stuff. Again, when I was in medical school and, and residency, we just, like, had almost nothing. We had limited options. Um, I really love your, your, uh, your input here. Sure, happy to do that. And let me say that uh, you're exactly right. I agree with you 100% about the caution, both for pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic reasons, since uh, our older patients are metabolizing medications more slowly often, and uh, blood levels can build up and be prolonged into the daytime. So people take so many different things or are given so many different things to try to help with their sleep. I like to put them in four categories. First, there are the dietary supplements. So these are completely unregulated by the FDA. 
Most of them are pretty benign. Um, the one that FDA has issued warnings about is Kava Kava, but things like valerian and hops and these various other things um, that are promoted for sleep uh, probably don't do a whole lot in terms of efficacy, but then again, um, they're, they're probably relatively safe. The other odd thing that falls into this category, though, is melatonin which, you know, we know that melatonin plays a very important role with our circadian system and our melatonin level comes up in the evening. That helps to quiet down our arousal and help facilitate sleep onset. So it kind of makes sense that people may use that to help them get to sleep. The problem with a lot of older individuals, including um, Alzheimer's population, is melatonin already is coming up early. Taking more is not likely to have more of an effect. And there are a lot of new questions coming up about, you know, perhaps some uh, safety issues with melatonin. So um, it may be benign. It may not. I I think the near future is going to teach us a whole lot more about it as more research is done. The next category is the formal over-the-counter preparations. These are the ones that are regulated by the FDA. All of these are antihistamines. Um, They are marketed as sleep aids. So there are two of them, diphenhydramine, doxalamine. They're relatively long-acting, so the effects can linger uh, into the next morning. The real real problem with these, with the Alzheimer's population, or or truly for um, any older individual, is there also are anticholinergic effects, which is exactly what you don't want uh, with an older individual. Uh, That can lead to memory difficulty and confusion and delirium. Uh, And so those are, are best avoided in older individuals. The third category are the prescription medications that are not approved for treating insomnia, but may be sedating and therefore are pretty commonly uh, prescribed. Some of them are antidepressants, some of them are antipsychotics. Really, in this category, the one that stands out is trazodone because it is so widely prescribed and it may be somewhat sedating and may be beneficial for some people. But I think we should be cautious with older individuals, um, especially because of the pharmacodynamic activity. So there's a lot of um, serotonin blockade postsynaptically, but there's also alpha-1 blockade, which can lead to um, lower blood pressure, orthostatic hypertension, increasing the risk of falls. In fact, there was a study that came out last year. It was a, a large retrospective um, case-matched control study looking at patients in nursing homes that were either started on trazodone or started on a benzodiazepine receptor agonist medication for their sleep. And the fall risk was about the same in both of those groups. So the trazodone um, did not represent a better alternative for those individuals. So then the fourth category are the prescription medications that are in fact approved by the FDA for treating insomnia. So there are four of those, pharmacodynamically, that is. So there are the benzodiazepine receptor agonists. Um, Some of them are structural benzodiazepines. Some of them are the newer generation non-benzodiazepines, but it's working very similarly pharmacodynamically. So there are five benzodiazepine receptor agonists uh, that structurally are benzodiazepines. And then there are three other newer generation ones that we call non-benzodiazepines. These are Zolpidem, Zaliplon, this is Zopaclone. But all of these work in a similar manner. The newer generation are somewhat shorter acting, so that is a benefit. But all of these can be associated with some memory difficulty, uh, you know, excessive sedation, ataxia as well. So as a class, they are, they're far from ideal for our patients with dementia.
There is a melatonin receptor agonist, Remelteon, works in a similar way to melatonin, helping to quiet down the circadian arousal in the evening, so maybe beneficial for sleep onset. Um, there is a histamine receptor antagonist. So this is low-dose doxepin in three and six milligrams, uh, which can be beneficial for sleep maintenance. These very low doses have the advantage of not incorporating the anticholinergic activity of some of the other products. Finally, there are a Rexin antagonist. There is, is one on the market now, Suvorexant. And interestingly, this has actually been studied in Alzheimer's patients. Uh, there was a, a um, phase three study looking at, I think, 277 individuals, uh, placebo-controlled, and the individuals taking the Suvorexant uh, had a significant improvement in their sleep duration. A decrease in the wake-after sleep onset was pretty well tolerated. So it's really interesting that that's actually been studied in this population. There are several other Orexin antagonists that are in the pipeline, and some may be available soon. One, one reason that these might be particularly beneficial is there are reports suggesting that there is increased Orexin uh, measurable in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. And this may go along with the fact um, uh, that there is still so much stimulation during that time. So in addition to uh, these treatment options, Dr. Isaacson, what type of interprofessional collaboration among healthcare providers can help address sleep problems in patients with Alzheimer's disease? So honestly, interprofessional collaboration is so important when it comes to managing people with Alzheimer's that have sleep uh, disturbances. And you know, just like the conversation we had today, David, um, you know, we learned a lot from each other. And, and even uh, a cognitive neurologist or Alzheimer's specialist jumping on the phone with a sleep specialist, um, even for a few minutes, um, I think can really um, hash out a really uh, more elaborate plan and, and really understand what outcomes to look for and, and what treatment options may be uh, the best bet. Um, the other aspect is to really incorporate um, you know, a social worker. Um, the social worker can really talk about some of the non-pharmacological interventions um, and also give guidance on an ongoing basis. And then further, physician extenders, you know, a nurse practitioner, physician assistants can also aid uh, in, in the overall uh, patient and caregiver educational approaches and um, really education about the variety of options, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic, are really key. And as our discussion comes to a close, let's each sum up the most important take-home messages from today. Dr. Isaacson, I'll open up the floor to you first. Sure. So I really learned a lot, and I think the, there's really two take-homes. Number one, that there are things that physicians can do to try to help their patients with Alzheimer's when they have sleep disturbances. From a pharmacologic perspective, from a non-pharmacologic perspective, I think I've just learned that there's a variety of options and a variety of newer options out there, and we have to balance the risks and benefits. And the other important thing is that we really need ongoing research, you know, to, to help us provide guidance on how to treat insomnia for people with Alzheimer's disease. Um, more phase three randomized controlled studies um, are, are really necessary before we can make even stronger conclusions. Um, but, but honestly, the take-home point for me is that there are options that we can use today. Yes, great take-home message there. Uh, and thanks for sharing that. Uh, and for me, what really stuck out in our discussion was this idea of bi-directionality and really leading into uh, the insights of you know, recognizing how important sleep is and how we can try to act early to help people 
prioritize sleep and to help create situations where people can, can optimize their sleep. And if, if there's some suspicion of sleep disorders, having those evaluated and treated because all of that may help slow down uh, the cognitive decline in, in this population. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank my colleague for helping us better understand insomnia in patients with Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Isaacson, it was a great pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Prova. Thank you for listening.